Well, let's, uh, let's pray together one more time as we uh, prepare to open the word of the Lord together. Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have. The opportunity to, the hope that we have through Jesus Christ and the salvation. Looking forward to that day, Jesus, when you return. Lord, we know that was heavy on the minds of the Thessalonians. So God, I pray that as we open this book together, as we consider this letter to that church, Lord, help us, I pray. Help us to understand what Paul was communicating to them, but also what you're communicating to us through your word and by your spirit and how, how we might change, be changed and adapt and adjust our lives to your will and your plan for us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you guys have your copy of God's Word, I do want to encourage you to open it today. We're going to be looking in the Bible. We, we had some computer challenges this week, and so we intentionally planned on not having any slides for the sermon. So as you're going through, this is the one slide you get. And um, so we're not going to have the scripture up there. And you're probably thinking, Joel, then why in the world did you make notes that are this long with all these blanks to fill in? And I have OCD, so I need to fill in all these blanks. Well, yeah, well, it's just the week that it is. So uh, we're going to work through that. As you're opening your Bibles at, um, and getting your notes out, if, if you'd like to follow along in that way, I, I want us just to think for a moment about this fascination that we seem to have as a society. In fact, not just us, but so many societies around the world, so many societies who have gone before. You see, we have this fascination with doomsday. We have this fascination with the day that everything is going to end, whatever that is going to look like. We have this fascination. Wow, what will it be? Can we fight against whatever forces are out there? And we, we see that in various movies. The whole Avengers series, if you're a superhero person or Marvel person, you, you, you know that whole series was moving toward a climax called the end game when, when they were trying to prevent the end of, of civilization as they knew it then. Or, or you have the, the movie that came out appropriately in 2012 called 2012 that was based on an old, old uh, I think, Mayan expectation that the end of the world was going to happen then. And so they made movies about that. Or, or we even have, the, if you go way back, the old Mad Max movies was all about a post-nuclear world, a post-apocalyptic time, and it was just crazy. And, and you know, we, so we're wondering, well, what is life going to be like after whatever happens? You even have thing, you know, people are assuming that that after time will include these things called zombies. And so we have movies like World War Z and the Walking and TV shows like The Walking Dead. We even see this in video games. One of my son's favorite video games is a movie is a game called The Last of Us. And so it's about this adventure of the guy going through this post whatever world where everybody's a zombie and he's trying to get things and not become a zombie. Did you know also, not only is it in all our, our media, we have it in Christian books, we have it in, in various other literature, we have it, this fascination of all this. Did you know that there are even automakers who are anticipating something happening down the road? And so they're building protect, protection in their cars. Tesla 
did that. They have a bio-defense, bio-weapon defense mode in their car. So if you were to own a Tesla and the nuclear fallout happened, you could push that button and you'd be safe as long as you're driving around and don't run out of electricity. We have this fascination with that. And, and, and I think because we assume that there's something more going on. For the people in Thessalonica, that day was on the forefront of their minds. They knew, they had heard that Jesus Christ was going to come one day. He was going to come back. And so that was something that, that, that was central to everything they did. And we're going to see that some this week, and we're going to look at it a little bit next week. But before we dive in, I, I want to just give us a little bit of background. You see, the, the city of Thessalonica back in the first century was a city of about 100,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia. It had a, a, a wonderful port. And so it was very important for political reasons, being the capital of Macedonia. But it was also important for economic reasons. So they had all this wealth. They had all these things going on in this, in this city. And the church of Thessalonica was started around 50 A.D. by Paul and, and Silas. You see, they had just left Philippi, and if you remember studying about Philippians, in, in Philippians, they were imprisoned in Philippi because, you know, so many people were coming to faith, and they're like, oh, we've got to get rid of these guys. So they were thinking that if you put them in prison, then they will uh, not be able to speak. Well, you know how Paul works. Prison's when he gets his best writing done. And so, we, anyways, after they got out of prison there, they came to Thessalonica, and, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 17. In fact, the, the reference is there in your notes, and I do want to encourage you this week. There, there's a lot of scripture in your notes, so sometime this week, go back and review that, read over those, consider those, but... Essentially, we learn in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas, when they left Philippi, they came to Thessalonica. And, and Paul went to the synagogue like he would do all the time. He always went to the Jewish community first. And so for three Saturdays in a row, three Sabbaths in a row, he, he, he basically presented an argument for Jesus Christ. And so many people began to believe that it caused a great stir in that city. He was only able to preach for about three weeks. And then they threw him in prison. And then they said, you got to get out. So this church was established essentially on three weeks of ministry. There may have been a bit more. But that fruitful beginning and abrupt departure left this church little. By way of a foundation. And so once, once Paul and Silas were released from prison, we don't know how long that was, they left town, they made their way to Athens, and, and several months later they sent Timothy back in order to help establish them and help give them a good foundation and help to organize them as a church. And eventually Timothy went back and met up with Paul and Silas and gave them the report of what was going on in Thessalonica. And so this letter is really the result of Timothy's report to Paul and Silas. Now, if you, if you're, uh, if you like watching the Bible Project videos, they kind of pulled together a really cool outline of this book. And, and what, one of the neat things about the way that Philippians or Thessalonians is organized, First Thessalonians, is that there are three different prayers that Paul prays for the people in Thessalonica. He has this opening prayer of thanksgiving, and then he talks for a great deal about a celebration of faithfulness, really Paul's celebration of, of what God was doing in him and through him and what he's doing in the Thessalonians. 
And then there's a prayer in the middle in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13. It's a prayer for endurance. And in many ways, this becomes the outline for the last half of the book. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul gives them a, a challenge to grow. And then he finally closes with a prayer of hope in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 26. So today, as we look at the book, as we think about um, what Paul is writing there, we're going to think about how we can live out what he is encouraging them to do. And Now, as I mentioned, one of the things that was on the forefront of the minds of the Thessalonian believers was the return of Christ. And so as we begin to think about how we should live, we have to wrestle with Paul's charge to the Thessalonians to live with Jesus' return in mind. If you want to take notes, that's your first blank. Live with Jesus' return in mind. You know, as you read through the book of First Thessalonians, First Th- did I say that a million times fast? First Thessalonians, you'll notice that Paul references the return of Christ in every single chapter. It was so much on their minds that Paul knew he had to address it. And so in every chapter of this little book, five chapters long, you see it referenced. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes he just hints at it, that hope we have. Sometimes he, he gets very blatant. Sometimes he, he, he talks more clearly about exactly what, what, what will happen. And it seems that one of the challenges that the church in Thessalonica was facing was a belief in the imminent return of Christ. They were expecting that he was going to return any day now. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be next week, but we better be ready. And so some of them were very concerned. They were very worried that the people who had died, because some people had died likely because there was ongoing persecution in Thessalonica. They were worried well, these people who are dead, what's going to happen to them? And so the passage that Brian read earlier really talks about that idea of of that hope that we have. The dead in Christ will rise first and meet Jesus in the air. And then we who are alive will also meet him in the air. And I think, you know, that that's a very interesting and strange picture. You have Jesus coming down. You have this great trumpet blast. You have all these noises coming from heaven. And then these dead people coming back to life and floating in the clouds. And then you have the alive people coming up and meeting him in the clouds. But remember last week when we discussed Jesus' comments that he is the resurrection and the life. And it seems like Paul is giving us a little bit of a clearer picture of what that will look like when Jesus Christ returns. And there's a very interesting word that Paul uses to talk about that meeting Jesus in the clouds. In fact, so often we, in fact, over the last 150 or 200 years, evangelical theology has has had it in our minds that this is the rapture. We're all going to escape. We're going to go up and be with Jesus. And then we're going to go to heaven, right? Well, one of the images, one of the things that Paul seems to be communicating here is not that he's coming, we're going to meet him part way and then go back up with him. That word that is used to meet or to welcome is, is everywhere else that it's used is used to go outside of a city to welcome someone who's coming into that city. So Jesus used that when he talked about the parable of the ten virgins the, as they're waiting patiently or impatiently they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and they go outside of the city 
to welcome the bridegroom as he comes into this festival. Now, I, I tell you that because, you know, if you're like me, you've grown up, I've grown up thinking, oh, well, there's a rapture and I don't know exactly how the timing's going to work. And we could dive into all sorts of theories that really wouldn't be very helpful for us today. But I want us to think about, in, in Greek, what Paul is communicating is that believers will go up and welcome Christ as he comes here for his second reign on earth, his second time on earth. So after assuaging the, the fears about Christians who have died, Paul addresses another concern about the date, about the, the timing of when Christ will come. And we see this in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. We won't, won't read all that right now, but if you want to look at that later, you can. But the whole thing that Paul is trying to communicate is that we don't know when he's going to come back. We don't know when Christ is he's going to come like a thief. We don't, if we knew when thieves were going to come, we'd be ready. And so we make up all these other preparations to make sure that we're ready when a thief comes unexpectedly. And Jesus is coming like a thief, but not as a thief. He's coming again as a Savior. And so here's the thing that Paul is really working on, on getting them to understand, and we're going to see this more next week. But that is that some of the Thessalonians, not only were they worried for those who had died, but they're also, they also stopped working. Some of them said, hey, if Christ is coming back, why do I need to keep this job? If Christ is coming back, why do I need to hold on to this house? If he's coming back, all of this is useless. And so they got lazy and they began to live off of the wealth of other people. They get, began to, to game the system. And so Paul urged them. He said, since we don't know when he's coming, you've got to stay busy, stay working, stay doing the things that God has called you to. You know, it, in comparing what Paul is writing here about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and looking in, in other scriptures, we don't have a way of knowing. People have tried to predict it. 88 reasons in 1988 why Jesus Christ is coming back. Last I checked, it's not 88. Um, we're always going to try to guess. And, and, you know, we will never know. But what we do know and what Paul, I think, is trying to communicate to the Thessalonians is that he will return. And in that, we can have a great deal of hope. Because, you know, and, and we can have hope in the midst of the times that are good and in the midst of difficulties that Christ will return. And speaking of difficulties, you know, persecution was a, a major part, major factor in the founding of the church of Thessalonica. It was a factor in their ongoing ministry and their ongoing growth as a church. In fact, Paul had to leave that church, leave that city because of persecution. And so some people wondered, some people were beginning to question Paul's motives. Did you just come here to make a quick buck and then leave when the going got tough? And so what we find in the first three chapters is Paul's really laying out an argument, helping them understand, here's why I came, here's what I endured. Here's what you need to understand about me and the ministry that I have. When Mark Dever, when he was working through this, this book, he, he looked at what Paul wrote there and he really established, he really sort of discerned seven signs of the genuine ministry. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at those seven signs. In fact, you'll find there's another there's seven blanks or seven things there as we consider as we reflect on Paul's example in ministry. We're going to look at these signs, these things and how we might be able to apply them in the various ministry opportunities that we have. So Paul's example in ministries and we see these these in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 through 3. We see at various times in our lives, God will open up doors of ministry to us. He will give us different types of ministry. Sometimes that's formal. Sometimes it's in a very organized way, such as as an elder or deacon or a a teacher or an usher, a greeter or a missionary. God may have a specific role in ministry for us to do. Sometimes that role is or that ministry is informal, such as caring for our neighbors or helping someone in need or showing hospitality or visiting the sick or or visiting those who are in prison. At other times, that ministry that God calls us to is natural. It's a a ministry that he he gives us, for instance, in, in a family as a mother or father, as a grandfather, grandmother, as another relative. As a friend. And whatever form that ministry takes, as Paul describes and defends the nature of his ministry among the Thessalonians, he provides an example for us to consider in the ministry opportunities that God places before us. So if you want to look, the first thing that we get to see is that we must have a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. We must have a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Look at what it says in your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You know, throughout Paul's ministry, he experienced opposition and persecution. You can hear, you, you can read in Galatians and, and in uh, several of, of the other letters, all of the opposition that, that Paul encountered. You see, I, I think there are some of us as Christians who will suffer because we go about proclaiming the good news in a way that generally won't be well received, we have to recognize our message is already offensive enough. But there are people who will suffer because the hope that we have in Jesus Christ doesn't make sense to the world around us. Paul experienced suffering from religious groups, from civil groups. He was even rejected by his own family. And in these passages, he talks about some of the suffering that he has endured and the suffering that the Thessalonians have encountered. In addition to being willing to suffer and sacrifice, another sign of genuine ministry that we see is, is a motherly care. A motherly care. In, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, Paul says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. You know, Paul is basically saying, look, I had I had the same kind of care for you that a mother would have for her child. 
that nurturing, that sacrificial care. I mean, when you think about the love and the time that a mom pours into raising children, it's a tremendous sacrifice. It's a tremendous act of love and care. And Paul is basically explaining that this is what I did to you. And so I wonder, when we have these opportunities at ministry, do we have that same kind of care? Because I don't know if you've ever noticed, ministry is sometimes inconvenient. It's inconvenient when that person calls and says, hey, uh, will you come over and visit? Will you help me with this? It's inconvenient. And yet we get to care and tenderly, like a mother cares for her children in that. But Paul also tells us thirdly that he he demonstrated fatherly encouragement to them. We see this in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. He says, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, in that short time that Paul and Silas got to be with them, they were careful to exhort and encourage and challenge the believers there personally. I love what it says when he, he says how, how we did this for each one of you. It, it, if you've grown up, how many of you guys have siblings? Anybody? So I, I have one brother, and, and if you've noticed, your siblings are drastically different than you are. You can see that if you've got children, you know that every one of your kids is unique. And if you just use a cookie cutter to raise them and to teach them and instruct them, you're going to find that the cookie cutter doesn't work with child A as it does with child B and child C. My brother and I are so different. And, and, and yet what Paul is saying is, is that just as a good father would know how to adapt instruction for this child versus instruction for that child, Paul is saying we did that among you so that you might see how, how you can grow. And so I want to encourage us when God gives us opportunities to minister that, that we be aware of how different each person is that we get to minister to. That phone call with this person is going to look very different with that phone call with someone else. Be sensitive to that. Number four, Paul demonstrated a thirst for togetherness, a thirst for togetherness. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. In verse 18, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And Paul demonstrated that time and time again, he wanted to get back together with the Thessalonians. You know, in this pandemic, that's, one of, that's been one of the deepest desires that I've had is for us as a church to be able to really gather again. And each week, it's, it's so encouraging to me when we do get to do that. I hope that this pandemic has given you a thirst, a longing to be in fellowship, a thirst for togetherness. Fifthly, Paul also talks about having a calm delight or a joy. You see, he sees the the Thessalonians as a source of joy 
So as we minister to others, seeing them mature and grow is a beautiful and profound experience. We'll have challenges. Not everybody's going to grow at the same pace. And sometimes the lessons they learn, they unlearn and go backwards. And then you get to walk with them back through that. And, and yet there's, there's something that we have to see. Remember, we're, we're constantly living with the return of Christ in mind. And that's one of the things that Paul has in his mind is that one day he's going to present, he's going to go before Christ and he's going to really present the Thessalonians as, with joy because of the things that they've grown. The things that they've learned. Number six, Paul demonstrates a thankfulness in prayer. He is, throughout his letters, he talks frequently about being thankful for the people to whom he is writing. And in spite of the short time that he had with them, Paul expressed gratitude for how they received the word and began to imitate him. He was thankful, even for that short time that he had with them, for all that they learned. How much does thankfulness enter into our prayer? How much does thankfulness for that difficulty, for that challenging person, for that trial? Are we thankful for those things? And number seven, Paul demonstrates a persistent hope. He exhibits hope in the coming of Jesus which is seen in the, in the life of holiness that the Thessalonians demonstrate in the present. He's looking forward to that day, knowing that there's, they're living that out now. And so as Paul looked back and, on, on how he acted toward the Thessalonians and provided, I think, for us an example for us, I want to encourage you that as we have opportunities to minister, we can learn from the things that Paul did. We can learn from the things that Paul really laid out before the Thessalonians here. But in the last two chapters of this letter, Paul paints a picture of life as Christians, of life as Christians in, in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> you see, there should be something drastically different between how we live now versus how we were before we came to Christ. For some of you, if, if you're like me, if you came to Christ as a young child, you don't remember much. I don't remember much of that. But I can imagine if I came to Christ now in my, in my 40s, how different my life would be from what it would have been just a few years ago. And so Paul lays out these eight exhortations, these eight challenges for the Thessalonians. And, and these, again, come from um, Mark Dever. Some of the things you'll notice in your outline are quotes. Those are direct quotes from, from, from Dever's uh, message. The rest of them are, are sort of adaptations that I've made. But the first thing that Paul really challenges them to is to live for God's pleasure. To live for God's pleasure. We see this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received um, that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul seems to be encouraging us to get our actions and habits in the right place, to live a life that's pleasing to God and not for our pleasure alone. 
to live a life that is, is, is centered on pleasing Him, focused on pleasing Him. And, and I think it's not that we can't enjoy things here. I think God has given us this world and this life as a means of enjoyment, as a way of enjoying His grace and His, His, His glory here on earth. But if all we ever do is live for us, then we miss the point, I think, that Paul is getting at. Are we living to please God? And, and secondly, Paul encourages them and he challenges us to live a sexually holy life. Live a sexually holy life. Deborah writes that sexual promiscuity was even more accepted and practiced in the ancient pagan world than in our own world today. One of the clearest ways that, that we demonstrate living for God's pleasure living for God's glory is in relation to sex and it's in relation also to how we use our money. But Paul is specifically talking here about sexuality. A sexually holy life is one that enjoys this gift of sex inside the covenant relationship of marriage, in the bonds of marriage. Throughout Scripture, that is the only place we see that in the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman i know that's not popular now people inside and outside the church they're like oh we gotta adapt this we gotta change this we gotta read scripture and you will find that that is the that is the way to enjoy a sexually holy life inside the covenant of marriage we get there's anyways i'll i'll, I'll stop there I want to encourage you to go back and read that passage and ponder that. But also, thirdly, Paul encourages them to live a life of unconditional brotherly love. Unconditional brotherly love. In fact, I love one of the things that Paul does here. If you look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. He says, now concerning brotherly love, which if you've, if you've been around the church a while, you probably know that there's a few different words that we use. You know, in Greek, they use a few different words for love that we all just translate into love. Well, that word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. In Greek, if you were to open up your Greek Bible and read right there, you would see Philadelphia, and it's translated here as brotherly love. So here's what Paul does. He says, now concerning Philadelphia or brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to agape, to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So I find it interesting that he mixes these two words, essentially saying, don't just love like a friend. Don't just love like a brother. Love brothers unconditionally. Pour out your love for them. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, the, the Just Thinking podcast, and they were commenting on the fact that so often we hear this exhortation from Scripture to love one another, to love one another, to love one another, to love one another. Brotherly love. Show unconditional brotherly love to one another. And so the question is, why does Scripture need us to know that over and over and over again? Do you think it's a challenge for us? I think that we need to recognize 
that the love that we have for one another is crucial. It is one key part of our spiritual growth, of the life and health of the church as we look for ways to love one another. Imagine what it would have been like in Thessalonica. You have, you have these Roman pagans who've now come to faith. And you have these um, Jewish Christians who are, now, or Jews who are now part of the body of Christ together. And so they have these traditions that are different. They have these habits that are different. They have these all sorts of things that are different. And yet Paul is saying, you guys are brothers, so love one another. I don't think it was as big a problem here in Thessalonica as it was for the Galatians or Ephesians. But it is still important. Our unity in Christ should be seen in our love for one another. Aside from ethnicity or race, from politics, from economic status, from personality, talent, all of that takes a back seat to our unity that we have in Christ as demonstrated by our love for one another. In addition to that, number four, Paul urges them to live an honorable life. Live an honorable life. Now, how many of you guys would consider yourselves an introvert? Anybody? Uh, we have a few. Okay, I'm with you. This is, this is our verse. Are you guys ready? Look in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. All right, introverts, you ready? And aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. That's exactly what, you know, most introverts, we just want to leave us alone. Just let us be by ourselves. But Paul continues in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Other translations say that so that you may win the respect of of outsiders. There is a charge for independence. And again, this gets back to the idea that some of them had quit working. Some of them had given up. They're depending on other people. And so Paul is urging them, get to work, be diligent, be faithful. So there's a charge that we have to be independent, to, to provide, to work as a way of gaining respect of those around us. Looking at how we take care of the things that God has blessed us with. Fifthly, Dever says that another thing that Paul writes is that they should live a life awake to God. In, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, uh, he, he talks a lot about the second coming of Christ. Well, let's go ahead and look there briefly. He says, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need... To have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And then he continues, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then, then he continues. You know, the, the challenge is that we can gain this false sense of security in things here and now. 
We can look at our bank account and think, oh, yeah, that's good. We can look at our home structure and everything and think, oh, yeah, I've got safety and security. We can look at the political environment. We can think, yes, oh, finally. All these things, these, they factor into life here, and we can put an undue amount of confidence and trust in those things. In fact, that's why in many of your Bibles it probably says in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, a lot of commentators think that that was a propaganda message that was going around. The Romans were trying to say, hey, there's peace and security. You have nothing to worry about. We're in charge, right? We're building these roads. We're, we're managing everything properly. And Paul's telling them, hey, they may say that, but Christ is going to come like a thief, and it will all be different. So stay awake to what God is doing. Sixth, sixthly, number six, live an encouraging life. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You know, amidst all of the challenges and trials of the last year, one of the common phrases that I've heard among Christians is that God is sovereign, that He is at work, He has a grander plan, and even this too shall pass, right? So as we are encouraging one another with the truths of God's Word regarding the future hope that we have in Christ, we get to live this out in the ways that we do good to one another encouraging one another in word, encouraging one, one another in deed. Number seven, live a life oriented around God. In 1 Thessalonians five sixteen to 17, it says, we read this earlier, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, right on the heels of living an encouraging life, Paul seems to encourage us to orient our lives around God. Rejoicing always. You mean, God, i got to rejoice when I lose my job? I have to rejoice when my child acts that way? When that customer tells me I'm number one in not a very nice way? Having our lives centered on God anchors us to the author of all life. And the ruler of all things. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a had lunch with a, a pastor friend of mine, and we got together because our, there were elements of our stories. We'd been in a group of people, kind of sharing our stories, and he's like, "Your story sounds kind of similar to mine. Let's talk and compare notes." And and Tim, I'll just tell you very briefly he had been a youth pastor for many many years at a church almost 20 years and a lot of people said tim you're getting old why are you still here why don't you go be a pastor somewhere and so he did he he became a pastor of a, another church and and god had uh you know he could see god's hand in moving him out of that one and, and into this new one and he had all these big plans he was planning 20 years to be there and Tim said, uh, you know, it wasn't two weeks before I realized this was not going to last. He said, I was willing to push through, but two, after just two weeks, he's like, the tension, the strife, the disunity was there. And he's like, I, I can tell. 
So after 20 months, the, some of the elders of that church finally said, Tim, we, this isn't working out. You've got to go. And so think about the, and here, here's the, the idea. We're orienting our lives around God. So how can God take something that was going well, put him in a situation that now is not going well at all, and he can rejoice in that? Well, a couple months later, he got connected with another church and ended up being sent by that church to start a new church. He's been pastoring that new church for six years. And he said, Joel, I look back and he said, I'm so glad that it didn't work out at that church at that time. He said, I could see the hand of God in that. I could see God working. I'm so glad that this is what God has in store for me. And and he he said, I could rejoice in that. And he, he talked about some other very cool things, some reconciliation, some peace. And so now he still does things with that church that he, was, he didn't pa- he's no longer pastor of. In fact, when I'm going to meet with these pastors at that church on Wednesday today for, for lunch. We'll have a, a little pastoral gathering. He's like, we've got a great relationship now. Even though I'm not the pastor of that church, I know that this was what God was calling me to. All that to say. Live a life oriented around God, recognizing that God is over all things. Rejoice in all circumstances. Give thanks continually. Pray continually. And finally, the last exhortation that Paul tells them. He says to live a life of discernment. We see this in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians five nineteen to 22 Live a life of discernment. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul urges them to test everything, to examine or to discern. Yeah, I got to tell you, sometimes with all the stuff that is happening in our world, when new things come in, these new messages, new whatever, it is so difficult to discern do I jump in on that or do I stay back? Is that of God? Because there are all the messages are there. And so I think Paul is challenging them. I think he's, he's challenging us to just take a deep breath and look closely. Look closely at all these things. I mean, we could look at all the, all the big events that have even happened in the last year in our nation. A lot of those have been reactions to difficult circumstances, and yet none of them, I would say, are of God. And if we just adapt, if we just say, oh, because of this, we're going to change our policy here. Because of that, we're going to change our policy there. No. Discern. Look in Scripture. Let Scripture guide how we live and how we act. These eight marks of a genuine Christian life should identify us. And I realize it's a lot to take in. In fact, let me encourage you. Part of the reason we have all the, all the scripture passages in there this week is, is so that we can go back and just read over it, meditate, think about how am I doing, in, whether in ministry or in, in my daily Christian life, how am I doing in these areas? And so I want to just encourage you to maybe take one or two each day this week. Reflect on them. Think about how, God, what do I need to adapt in my life to what you're saying? 
And I realize that this is filled with a lot of very detailed elements. And it's easy to get weighed down and think, oh, this is such a big to-do list. Take it piece by piece. But I do want to bring your attention to one final thing, one common thread that if you, re- if you read through First Thessalonians, a common thread that you'll see through that. And that is what some theologians call Paul's triad, that triad of faith, hope, and love. We know that most clearly from reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? But these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But in, in Paul's opening prayer, if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, in Paul's opening prayer, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then near the end of the book, you see he kind of bookends this together. In chapter 5, verse 8, he tells them again. He says, But since we belong to to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for helmet, the hope of salvation. Throughout this letter, these three elements have cropped up as a persistent theme. As a common thread. In fact, if you're one who's, who's kind of memorizing the verses, the, our scripture, our memory verse for this week comes from the middle of the book, and it doesn't explicitly say faith, hope, and love, but all of those things are there. Look at what it says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Text message. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 to 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You could almost say, by faith may the Lord make you increase and abound in love and at the, in, in hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, let me encourage you, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that God has called you out of sin and into a relationship with Him. Stand firm in your faith. Be steadfast in your love for God and for one another. And also live in the expectation of the hope that is to come in the return of Jesus Christ. Live hoping, expecting His return. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you for this word, for, for your word and the opportunity that we have to study it together. God, I pray that you would help us to honor you, to be identified by how we live as men and women, as boys and girls who seek to please you in every part of our lives. Help us, we pray, by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.